It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to the CapEx podcast brought to you by the Centre for Policy Studies. I'm John Ashmore, the editor of CapEx. Are you a booster or a doomster? A recent article by The Economist and CapEx regular Sam Bowman suggests this is the divide in UK economic policy. For the boosters, not only is growth paramount, but there's plenty we can do through better domestic policy to improve things, both right now and for future generations. Doomsters, on the other hand, take a more pessimistic view and see a country trapped in low growth with huge demographic pressures and public spending commitments coming down the line. So for this week's episode, we decided to test both sides of this debate and see if we could find some common ground. To that end, I welcomed the original booster, Sam Bowman, and one of the people he name-checked in his article as a doomster, Tim Pitt, a former Treasury advisor and now a partner at consultancy Flint Global. This was a really challenging, fruitful discussion, and I hope you all find plenty of food for thought. Okay, Sam, Tim, welcome to the CapEx podcast. Thanks very much for being here. Sam, we're here to discuss an article you wrote recently on your Substack, Consumer Surplus, entitled pithily, Boosters versus Doomsters. Now, for those of our listeners who might not, for the few people who might not have read this blog post, what is the kind of thesis here about who are the boosters and who are the doomsters and what divides them? So I believe that the big divide in British economic policy is between people who basically think there are free lunches and people who think there are no free lunches. Um, I think the boosters are people who think that there are things that we could do relatively costlessly that would make UK GDP grow much more rapidly than it has grown for the last 10 or 15 years and make us dramatically richer in the relatively short term. Doomsters, and I do apologize that it's the that's who, who wants to be a doomster, who wants to be the bad side, but it's not the people themselves who are doomsters, it's the forecast. It's they the way they see the the situation that we've kind of we've landed with, think that there are much more deep structural fundamental barriers to the sort of growth that I think everybody wants to see, um, but that they think is much, much, much harder to get hold of. And I think that the 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 big and the kind of the crucial 
uh, cause, but I, but hopefully um, maybe I'll be maybe I'll be wrong, or maybe I've missed some things out. But I think the really big underlying cause of all that is demographics and the the fact that we have a very aging society. We're not having nearly as many children as we would need to have to maintain the sort of population structure that we used to have. So we have a lot of old people. We have many mo- many more old people as each year goes by. We have to pen- <clears throat> spend a lot of money to keep them alive. Spend a lot of money to make sure that they're living decent lives. Um, and we have fewer people in the workforce to pay for that. So taxes have to rise, and that slows down growth as well. Okay. Thank you. That's a very pithy um, summary. There's a sort of irony here in the fact that in your piece, kind of boosterism actually starts from a slightly pessimistic view about how bad things already are in the UK, and that there are so many broken areas of policy that really the only way is up, whereas perhaps the doomster view is that this you know, we're in a bad state and that is somewhat self-perpetuating. Um, Tim, you are named in Sam's article among the group of, of doomsters, along with um, people like uh, Giles Wilkes and Rupert Harrison. And what you all have in common, as Sam notes in the pieces, that you've worked in government, you've seen the machine from the inside and know about those kind of difficult trade-offs. And what do you think about this divide that, that Sam draws? Is it, you know, it's a valuable way of looking at economic policy? So I thought I thought it was a great piece. It was very thought provoking and clearly got lots of people engaged. And there, there, there is definitely something to it. I think what I would say ultimately is that when you're thinking from a policy perspective specifically about what it means you should do for future growth, I actually don't think the distinction matters that much, right? So if you know, I, I, all the people you list as doomsters absolutely think policy can make a difference to growth for sure. And actually, I think you'd probably get a broader agreement on the types of policies that you know you advocate: planning, corporate tax reform, skills, infrastructure, innovation, fixing Brexit. You know, all of those things that can impact growth. You know, I absolutely agree with. Absolutely think we should do. I think you know, as you point out, I think that probably the difference is I think we need to be realistic about the impact that even the most brilliantly executed growth strategy can have. And you know, Sam is right. Is that I think my view is that there are big structural forces that have led growth to slow in recent decades, right? So there's a view out there that the UK economy was going along sort of fine. We then had the financial crisis and a series of shocks. And we've then had anemic growth since. Um, and, and that can all be fixed. But actually, if you look at the sort of growth and productivity slowdown, it is part of a much longer trend. So productivity on a 10-year average basically declining since the 1960s, basically. GDP per capita, 2.5% in the 80s, 2% in the 90s, 1.2% in the 2000s, lower still in the 2010s. So absolutely, financial crisis and what's happened since has made it much worse. But I think there is there are those underlying structural factors. Demographics is one. I think the other one is just a shift into lower productivity services. Um, and, 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 and I think this is where Sam and I probably do differ, right? It's not that policy can't make a difference on growth, it's that you've got these serious headwinds going in the opposite direction. That means that just getting growth policy right isn't some sort of silver bullet. And I think that's that's where the characterization does matter. Because if you take Sam's view, you say, I can fix growth, and so don't worry about things like the public finances and inequality, because ultimately my growth plan is going to fix those. If you take my view, I think, yes, we can get more growth, but we can't use that as an excuse to ignore those challenges. That's just passing the buck to the next lot. So I, I, I would characterise it as a realist position rather than a doomster position, but that, that, that's how I'd sort of characterise it. But yeah, realistic doom. Yeah. I don't think it's that... Do- you know, I think absolutely growth can get higher than we can, right? And I don't think it's a 
doomy scenario. We, you know, I, I, I think there's a, you know, yes, we're going to have to pay some more money so that we can all have fantastic healthcare, right? That, I don't think that's a terrible thing to sort of have to do, right? We're all living longer lives. That is a good thing. It's not, I, I don't think it's a gloomy world I'm looking at. It's just we're not going to have the sort of growth rates that we had, you know, post the Second World War. Sam, um, I think one of the kind of criticisms of your side of this debate is that you can be, you can sound, and you, again, you mentioned this in the piece, you say dilettantish or kind of panglossian about how easy you can just sort of stack growthy policies on top of the existing stock of, of policies. And this is something that Giles Wilkes says in a very good piece about kind of the nature of growth. How do you respond to that critique? And is there, despite that, do you think there is so-called low-hanging fruit there that wouldn't necessarily cost lots of money that we could do? I mean, planning is the obvious one, but and what, what measures do you think we could introduce realistically? I will answer what measures I think we should do, although I, I, I do think we probably are all on the same page about what we should do. We just might disagree about how far they would go. Um, the way I would frame it is I think that we should think of the UK as a developing country. And what I mean by that is um, we're very used to thinking of the UK as being on the technological frontier, where the constraint on how fast we can grow is how good we are at doing science, how good we are at turning scientific innovations into business applications, um, how good we are at really getting, getting more out of the investment that we've already done. That's how you should think if you're the United States or Singapore or Switzerland. That's how countries at the frontier should think. The UK is very, very far off the frontier. We have a GDP per capita that is about 32% lower than that of the United States, um, and it's significantly lower than that of lots of other countries as well, including lots of other European countries. So it's not a straightforward, you know, size of the state question. You know, you can you can have faster growth and higher living standards with a re a, a larger state than the US has. Um, actually, a state that's not that far off the size that the UK has. It's kind of how you do it. Now, what I mean by thinking like a developing country is that developing countries don't think at the frontier. The constraint on developing country growth is not, South Korea's growth is not constrained right now, or hasn't been at least constrained over the last 30 years by technological innovation. It's been constrained by things like investment, getting people into the right places and getting people into the right jobs um, and using capital and labor in a more efficient way, basically catching up to the frontier. Um, and South Korea, incidentally, has leapfrogged us. It, South Korea has rapidly overtaken us in terms of GDP per capita um, and, and doesn't look set to slow down massively in the, we, in the way that we have anytime soon. Um, and it's not just that we're much poorer than the US, and it's not just that we're considerably poorer than lots of European countries. We're a lot poorer than we would have been if we had continued at the trajectory that we were up until the financial crisis. And obviously, the financial crisis was a huge global event that had huge costs for many, many, almost every country in the world. But the UK is almost an outlier. It not, not quite. Italy had a pretty terrible experience, but, but also actually Italy had a pretty bad decade leading up to the financial crisis. The UK is a bit of an outlier in having had quite good performance in the decades up to the financial crisis and then complete flatlining. We're talking 0.4% GDP growth on average um, since the financial crisis. Now, that is, that is not, I think, something we can just say, oh, well, it's just the financial crisis because we're, we're pretty much alone in that being the consequence. And to me, that says there is a lot of potential catch-up growth that we could be doing, 
both with countries that exist in the world and with the kind of counterfactual of the UK as we could imagine it, given how we were growing before the financial crisis. So to me, that's why I think there are huge low-hanging fruit, why, that, why I think there is a lot that we could do. Now, what should we do? Um, I do think, and sorry that I, I, I always talk about housing and I'm a, such a housing-pilled guy. And, and, there, and well, there, is a, there, there is a really, really fundamental disagreement between, for example, me and Giles Wilkes. And no, I won't get into it because he should be here to you know, defend himself. Well, but, but, but you know, I, I think that there is a really, really deep fundamental gr- disagreement on things like housing about, you know, is, is a liberal housing market going to give us 10% extra GDP or 0.5% extra GDP? I think it's more like 10%. Um, and I think that many other people on the kind of other side, the more pessimistic side of the debate, not going to use the D word uh, if it's, if it's, uh, if it's a, a, an epithet, um, I think that they think it's, it's, it's a fraction of that. Um, the final thing I'll say, and, I, and we can talk more about specific policy, policy areas if you'd like, but the final thing I'll say is that to me, the, um, the piece was kind of a little bit like a, a challenge to, do, to boomers. To, to, to people who think that this growth can happen, to say, to look, boosters, you need to, to boosters, sorry, yeah, yeah, I don't even remember my own, my own words, uh, to, yeah. to, to boosters, to say, <clears throat> these guys on the other side are not just pessimistic, they're not just people who don't have ambition, you know, they're not just cheens, they're people who have a very thought out and they have a very reasonable and, and I think quite sophisticated model of why things are the way they are. Uh, and we need to we need to get our act together, both thinking about why we think they're wrong and also thinking about how do we get the things that we want. Because the number one response that I've had to the piece is from people saying, well, I'm a booster in principle, but I think politics will never let us get the things that we should do. And to me, that's the cutting edge of, of kind of practical boosterism. Thanks, Sam. Um, Tim, I just want to pick up on, because you use the word realist to describe your sort of side of this debate, let's say, crudely put. Um, but do you think that we as a country and the kind of political class, people in government, are unrealistic about the, the actual state of Britain, about where we are as a country? Do you accept Sam's characterisation that we ought to be thinking of ourselves as quite far off where we could be? Yeah, I mean, so, I mean he is absolutely right in terms of certainly post-financial crisis um, that the, the, the UK has performed really pretty badly. Even Everyone's had a hit, but the UK has performed pretty bad, badly. Absolutely, we should be able to make up some of that gap, right? I guess the, the debate between me and Sam is how much of that you can make up. I mean, I think it's not just about policy, right? Each country has its own demographics, different economic histories, cultures, different sizes of markets, right, which give them, you know, different advantages. Um, you know, I think what I would say is that lots of people talk about that and, you know, you talked about European countries, France and Germany are often picked out. If you look at France and Germany and bring it to the, ca- the debate we're having in the Conservative campaign, right, we are, we are behind them on productivity and, and, and growth. Um, over the last 10 years, it is not immediately obvious that the problem is that the UK is overtaxed and overregulated, right? Both of those have, you know, significantly higher tax burdens than the UK does. So that, that is why I think the sort of campaign debate is quite divorced from actually the sort of challenges uh, that we've got, and also on the fiscal side, right? Germany is r- run incredibly tight fiscal policy, um, uh, can, you know, and it has much lower debt to GDP than than, than, than we do. So, I, you know, that's where my point is. I don't see that, that there's a trade-off necessarily. And what Sam and I are suggesting, right? You can run sensible fiscal policy and try and tackle distributional questions, which I think are important, and at the same time do all or lots of the things that Sam is suggesting. So, I don't. My point is, why I don't really know where it gets. Well, that necessarily leads you to a, a a different place. I think one 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 thing I definitely 
would agree with is, and 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 it is the right challenge that you sort of set there is how do you deliver this stuff? Because and and Simon French actually had a good piece in the Times yesterday uh, talking about the campaign and the promises. Yesterday there. is Wednesday, Sorry. by the way, for the <laughs> for, the, for our listeners. You know, and he talked about the difference between campaign economics and governing economics, right? And actually, campaign economics you can promise all things to all people, and when you get into power, it is about making those difficult decisions and 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 those difficult. Trade-offs. Now, you obviously can have serious reforming administrations that can have a, an impact on growth, right? And Margaret Thatcher, you know, obviously, you look at her administration and you look at the impact on growth. There was there was an impact. It wasn't enough to sort of turn things around completely and stop that sort of slow slide. But if you look at the eighties and nineties, it does sort of you know ease off a bit. So, you know, absolutely, there there is the room to do that. But you know, that was a serious reforming administration that took some really big difficult decisions made itself incredibly unpopular at 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 times and had a very clear overarching economic philosophy behind it and one of the things that i worry about at the moment within the conservative party particularly is that we don't have that i I think there's lots of very good ideas out there and sam lists lots of them but i don't think we brought that together in a coherent package that says Right, this is actually what we're going to do in government. These are the reforms, looking at the challenges the UK faces around demographics, around where our economy is going, and bring it into a coherent package saying, I know we're going to have to do difficult things, but you know, it's worth it for the long term. We're just giving off the sort of easy answers. Yeah, Sam, you mentioned in your piece at the very end that you haven't necessarily, when you wrote it, you didn't have a massively clear view which side Rishi Sunak or Liz Truss might be on. Having had a few weeks of this incredibly frenetic, slightly weird campaign, are you any clearer? Have you seen anything on the economic side where you think, aha, you know, that might be actually help get us out of this hole in some way? Um, not really. I, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to pick sides and I don't want to um, really, what I really don't want to do is suggest that I'm that excited about either of the options because um, that's a real hostage to fortune and it would be dishonest as well. Um, you know, on the one hand... You get good noises from Liz Truss, in my opinion at least, good noises from Liz Truss on not raising corporation tax. And then the next day she turns around and says she wants to ban solar farms uh, or she wants to have fewer solar farms. You know, in the same token, you have Rishi Sunak, who I think did really good stuff on corporation tax um, recovery, uh, cost recovery, the, the, the super deduction, which was something that I and the CPS and lots of other people had been sort of suggesting for a long time. Um, but he made it temporary. Um, he doesn't seem to have decided to bring it back or, or kind of suggest to bring it back. And, you know, he wants to ban onshore wind or wants to maintain um, bans on onshore wind. So, you know, on both sides, you have certain kind of glimmers of, of promise, which is good. And then you have very depressing and in my view, kind of seemingly needless, um, like sops to people who have no interest in growth at all. Uh, so I'm not that optimistic, but uh, who knows? You know, it's it, I, I I do think that um, we can over we can be over optimistic about a country's self political self correction mechanism. You know, I, I I always remember like free marketeers saying, oh, they want Scotland to be independent because then it will be so badly managed that they'll have to turn themselves into a kind of free market paradise. Um, and I always thought, like, have you ever heard of Argentina? You know, do you not do you not realize how bad things can get before? I mean, and Argentina has never really recovered from the mistakes that it made 
throughout the 20th century. Um, so while on the one hand, I do agree with Adam Smith that there's a great deal of ruin in a nation. You know, there are lots of things that can go wrong without the whole country just completely going belly up. Um, I think that there, the, the flip side of that is a nation can take a huge amount of punishment before there's a sort of collective realization that something has gone badly wrong. The, the, the best example of that actually happening, and, and I think um, the best break uh, there was the IMF coming into the UK in the 70s, which is I think was a really dramatic point where people said, okay, well, we have to do something different. But I'm not sure that there, I, I can't really imagine what that is for the UK right now. Um, Tim, do you agree with that sort of analysis? I mean, there's a sort of view, I think, among some people that things will come to such a head that we will have to embrace some kind of deep radicalism that will turn the, the ship round, that these things are cyclical, that we're at another 1979 moment. The problem being, of course, that there is no Margaret Thatcher around. The next government is more likely to be Labour than Conservative. I mean, do, do you see any hope of that, of this thing that Sam describes of kind of things coming to a head and people realising that actually, no, we need, we need to, you know, do something completely different to turn the ship around? Or... I, 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 I think it is very hard to remake yourself and to come up with a sort of radical reforming agenda after 12 years in government, whether you're on to your fourth prime minister. I think that is reality of it. And if you look at the transitions, you know, and this isn't the fault of either candidate, but ultimately, you know, they've had busy day jobs for the last two, two and a half years. Um, to then suddenly expect them to have a fully thought through plan that was worked up, having not had time in opposition to do that, I think is a, is a real challenge. And you saw it when Theresa May came in, and you've seen it a lot with Boris Johnson coming in. It's like, what actually do you want to do with 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 your time in office? And so I think that is a a, a real challenge for the for the Conservative Party. And if you're a cynic about it, you say actually, you know. What it probably, you know, what it possibly needs is some time in opposition, so it actually can have these debates properly and um, try and come up with a clear, coherent plan. You know, I actually think the sort of people Sam and I would have a lot in common about what that plan should look like. But ultimately, and so I think lots of, I think there is a way of bringing the Conservative Party sort of together around it. I think that's just incredibly hard to do in current circumstances, particularly given how brutal the campaign's been. Well, I think the thing that unfortunately, that we have in common that is very rare is that we take economics seriously. And I think that a lot of the Conservative Party, um, as is just visible from looking at the last 12 years of the Tory party in government, is that it hasn't really put economics first. And and you've had kind of successive administrations that have, you know, put various different priorities, um, things that may be very important. And um, Theresa May's burning injustices, lots of really important stuff there. Net zero, very important. Leveling up, very important. But none of which are economic growth. And, and all of which sort of assumes that economic growth is something that just happens if you if you don't think about it. And I, I think that, um, you know, Tim and I may disagree on some things, but where we, I think, agree very strongly is that you need to think about economics very seriously and very carefully. Um, one thing I, I will say is um, I, I agree that there's been a, a, a real kind of bankruptcy of sort of policy thinking in, in government. Um, and, you know, a really good example of that is the government, the, the Boris Johnson government's attempt to reform planning. Um, now, I think planning is the most important issue in the UK. And on the face of it, you may think that I would have been a huge supporter of the proposals because they were pretty ambitious and pretty radical. But I was really, really down on them because I thought they were way too ambitious and way too radical. And I thought that, yeah, it would be great if you could push a button. You know, if we lived in, an, if we lived in a dictatorship, then fantastic. This is a great way of, do, of reforming planning. But given that we don't and given that it's very clear that there are lots of people who object to even fairly um, mild in the grand scheme of things, 
type approaches to planning reform. You need to be smarter about it. Um, and to me, the challenge, as, I, as I've kind of said, is for people like me um, to think about how do you get the low-hanging fruit in a way that is actually politically viable? And how do you craft policies so that it doesn't really matter who's in Downing Street? You know, who does, even, even, if, even if it's Labour or even if it's a, a Lib Dem or, or an SNP administration or something kind of crazy like that, it doesn't matter who's in Downing Street. The policy that you're proposing is so win-win in, in the way that it shares the benefits of the growth that you are you are trying to get with the people who would otherwise be losers, that there is no strong constituency of opposition to it. Um, and that's really hard. But to me, that's where the exciting stuff is happening. Yeah, one of the more interesting, and there were many interesting responses to your original blog. I've rarely read one where so many different people have weighed in and written response pieces of their own. Um, it's from a guy called um, Adam Bell, who works for Stonehaven, which is a public affairs agency. And he was talking about work they've done, kind of mapping your electoral coalition and asking what I think is a really important question is, is there a coalition out there for pro-growth policies? Or are we stuck in a situation where we just kind of get little bits of, of boosterism, if you like, rather than a kind of the kind of across-the-board package that we might actually need? Well, I, I think that depends a little bit on, how you, on what, what your version of pro-growth policy means, right? I think it is very difficult, I think, to see a sort of slash taxes, slash spending version of pro-growth policy that is going to build an electoral coalition. I think people want decently funded public services. I think that obviously has implications for the tax system. But I think you can have that and do lots of the things that Sam is describing alongside it. A lot of the issues with the tax system, in my view, are not about the overall rate. As I say, there are places with much higher tax burden as a share of GDP than us who've got better productivity and who've got better growth. For me, the, the debate around tax should be about the reform of the tax system, right? And make, you know, it's just riddled with inefficiency. I think you can reform it and have a significant impact on, on growth. But so, so, so I think there is a way of aligning a um, pro-growth agenda with with that with, with a sort of broad electoral coalition, I just don't think it is a sort of super right wing slash the state version of it. Yeah, I mean, I, much as I wish that was the case, um, I think you're probably right. I mean, what about we haven't discussed kind of institutional reform much here? I mean, Sam, what's your view on that? You've been quite critical of what's known in policy circles as Treasury brain. Um, Tim, I think we'll have to come back on this, having worked in the Treasury. But can you just briefly describe what this is? This is a kind of penny-wise, pound-foolish, small-c conservative approach to fiscal policy. Is that a reasonable characterization? Um, that's a reasonable characterization of what's described as Treasury brain. And I'm sort of a critic of that. But on the other hand, um, other government departments have like the exact opposite. They, they have need, they are kind of penny foolish and pound foolish. And so um, I think it's quite useful to have a department that is very strict about spending and is sort of the, the auditor or the kind of the, the, the mum checking over and making sure people have actually done their homework and making sure people have actually got a good reason for spending the money that they want to spend, which is ultimately our money, not their money. Um, certainly, I wish the Treasury was as I perceive it from the outside, was better at doing pro-growth policies. I think there are probably lots of people at the Treasury who think very seriously about growth. And I think that they um, and I think that the Treasury overall is is probably not as short-termist as it seems like it is from the outside. 
Uh, what I would love to know from a kind of an institutional reform point of view is how do we empower people who are thinking on 10 and 20 year time horizons rather than people who are thinking on three and five year time horizons? Um, and how do we empower people given that, who are thinking about raising the growth rate and who understand the value of small aggregate growth increases over 10, 20-year time periods. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I mean, Tim, you've been on the inside. You were an advisor to two chancellors of the Exchequer. Do you think some of the criticism the brickbats aimed at the Treasury are a bit unfair? Are some of them fair, you think? And what do you think about this idea? There's an idea that's been put about that we should sort of break it up and have a kind of ministry for growth or put some of its functions in uh, base or, or, and have a kind of finance department instead rather than this all-encompassing thing. What do you, what do you think about that? So I, I, think, I think the Treasury is a sort of very easy punching bag and often people who critique the Treasury essentially just want to be able to spend more money on their pet project and they're frustrated that the Treasury doesn't let let them uh, do it. I, I think the, one of the other things I would say is, you know, you, you, you look at our fiscal policy recently, other than the Osborne era, it, you know, it does not strike you as immediately obvious that the problem that UK have is that we've got overly tight fiscal policy, right? Rishi Sunak's fiscal rules basically allow you to run a deficit of 3%. Our national debt has more than doubled over the last decade and a half, right? I don't think that that is the issue. I think what I, a more nuanced critique, like Sam has, has just given, I think is much fairer. And I think, you know, I, I don't think breaking up the Treasury is the answer. I do think that empowering the economic side of the Treasury. I do think the fiscal side can crowd out the, the economic side of the Treasury in terms of the advice going up to the Chancellor and that that can dominate too much. That isn't to suggest at all we should change fiscal policy, but I think, um, or, or, you know, or, or loosen fiscal policy, but I think that that side of the Treasury should uh, be beefed up. And I think the Treasury itself as an institution should be more proactive about leading on this agenda, putting policy papers out against it. You have, as Sam says, got brilliant people in there thinking this, this all through, but in the in the Treasury's defence, you know, I I also think you know its function is vital. Right, someone has to care about the public finances, and nobody else does, right? And if we don't, we just have limitless borrowing, which is clearly unsustainable. And the second, I think, and this is a really important function the Treasury does provide, 
which is that most or lots of the ideas dreamed up in the sort of political sphere, I think, are you know, have lots of flaws in them. You know, dead weight, distortion, failure to think about opportunity cost, failure to think about delivery, de de delivery, failure to think about the sort of markets ability to provide this stuff. Now, in a free market, you don't need the treasury because ultimately the market weeds out the bad ideas. You don't have that in government. And so you need someone weeding out the bad ideas and saying, actually, I know this sounds great on a press release, but for the following reasons, it's actually a terrible idea. So I think the treasury plays a vital function there. But I do have some sympathy with Sam's point about beefing up the economic side of it. And it should be pointed out that in terms of economic growth, I mean, I'm not sure Bayes is the department that I want thinking about economic growth. I think um, it's already too big. Well, it was That's already... Was I'm not sure it should exist but, at all, personally. Right. But um, it was Bayes. It was, it was the, the, the business secretary who blocked the building of an interconnector between Portsmouth and France in January this year that, had it gone through, would be providing an extra 5% of electricity to the UK. I mean, that wasn't a Treasury decision. That was a big... why they blocked it as well, because it is... Well, so for, NIMBY, for NIMBY reasons. Yeah, it's like blocking a view or something. Yeah, for NIMBY reasons. Yeah. Um, so it's not... So it's not... I mean, I, I suspect had the Treasury made that decision, it probably would not have blocked it. I, you know, I, so I, I don't... I think it's very, very easy and tempting to say, oh, wait, the way we solve this problem is just by breaking up this department and empowering this department. But my experience of different departments is that there are good people and bad people in all of them, and it's nowhere near as simple as it, as you would like it to be to, to, to just say, well, this is the bad one, let's just break it up. Uh, I made one other point, I mean, I, that should have made earlier, but is I think lots of the things Sam talks about and that we would agree on is Treasury orthodoxy. Uh, lots of the stuff Sam said, absolutely the Treasury would be bang up for. The reason they don't happen isn't because of the Treasury's institutional view. They don't happen because of politics, planning being the sort of most obvious answer, right? And so there's this sort of attack on Treasury orthodoxy as if it's been holding back growth. A lot of the reason we haven't done the stuff we should have done is because politicians say, no, no, thanks. Advice comes up and says, I'm not touching that. That's too difficult. One area, one, one area where I think the Treasury um, thinking, at least as I understand it, having never worked at the Treasury, um, does seem to be a problem is, is this tendency to look at the near term rather than the long term. So, for example, um, full expensing, which is similar to the super deduction, which would allow businesses to deduct capital investments today in the same way that they can deduct things like rent and wages and pens and paper um, and and would when you when you look into the way investment works end up eliminating a tax bias that currently exists for those sort of long-term um, investment projects that comes with a really front-loaded cost uh, because basically your tax breaks you would have given over a 20-year period you give today um, but over the course of about seven or eight years that front-loaded cost evaporates and it is more expensive than not doing it but it's it's not nearly as expensive in the long run as it feels in the short run now to me that's a really good idea i think it's i think it's much much more important thing to do on corporation tax than thinking about the headline rate incidentally although i think the headline rate is important um but it seems as if there is someone or there is somebody or there is something somewhere in the Treasury that has strong objections to this, largely because of the front-loaded cost. And in fact, your colleague, uh, Tom Cloherty at the CPS, has, has designed a way of doing this. He calls it neutral cost recovery that would allow you to eliminate the front-loaded cost. It doesn't, in fact, save any money. It just gets rid of the kind of accounting problem of having a big front-loaded cost. Now, to me, the fact that he's had to do that um, 
it shows that there is a bit of a problem and that there is a thing that we need to deal with so that we can think about things that are costly today but will end up either saving us a lot of money in the long run or not be nearly as expensive in the long run and getting us a lot more growth. I think that sounds to me, Sam, that it's not um, incompatible with what Tim's saying about political horizons. It's that perhaps political masters, if they don't see an immediate benefit to a policy then they'll just go, yeah, let's see, you know, we've got an election in two years, that kind of thing. I mean, what do you think, Tim? I mean, is that is this short-term, long-term bias, is that something you saw in government? Yeah, for sure. And, 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 and I think it depends also on the sort of strength of your political uh, position at the time, right? If you're in a, as I was for most of my time in government, in a minority government that you're not quite sure how long is going to last, your political time horizon is pretty short and you can't get difficult stuff done. I mean, I think it does work, but I mean, I can, I, I, I agree with the point. Chancellors are very focused on the scorecard and their fiscal rules, which are on a five-year time horizon. And, and I think in your um, example, that sort of works against long-term decision-making. At the same time, it, it can work the other way on spending, which is you think, I'm going to sign up to big infrastructure problems you know, thing that happens in the 2030s because I ain't going to be here trying to make the numbers add up then. So I do actually think it cuts both ways a bit. But I, the, the broader point, I think, is there is some merit. And, and I think that links into the to the broader point that you were making, and I agree with, which is about beefing up the economic side of the Treasury to try and give those, you know, make sure there is a more robust debate about those types of things. Um, can we, sorry, Sam, do you want to come in? Well, um, I wanted to go back to this point about... Um, Policies, uh, because I gave one, but I and, and I, you know, we've discussed a few, but you know, I think that it's worth thinking about the. And I, I wrote a piece with um, Stephen Westlake, who has called for the breakup of the Treasury, and uh, you know, I'd, I'd love to hear he and Tim uh, debate that. But um, called reviving economic thinking on the right, and the point of that was to say, look, the UK has some very very clear problems. Um, the ones we highlighted were we don't really make enough of prosperous cities, um, both in terms of getting people into them and making it easier for people who live around them to get to and from them. Um, and we underinvest, um, and we have problems with capturing the benefits of intangible capital intensive industries and, and, and so on. <clears throat> to me, the, the two really big areas, maybe, th maybe there's a third of where the kind of focus should be in terms of growth are around what's called agglomeration, which is to do with you know people and places and where people are, economic geography, and that is partly to do with housing, but it's also to do with infrastructure, um, to, to do with road pricing. The real and, and incidentally, um, the really really big policy challenge for anybody listening who really wants to save the UK is to think about a politically viable way of doing congestion pricing across the country because. It should be something that will create enormous benefits because it will make buses far more reliable. And so it will massively expand the ability of public transport to serve new areas and for people who live in you know, East Ham to get to railways and things like that. But it's incredibly unpopular and it's incredibly difficult to see how you get from where we are to congestion pricing. Um, A classic example, by the way, of an policy that the Treasury would absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. endorse well, 100%. But, it, but actually, we have a, with, with congestion pricing in particular, um, my fear is that we're going to do a really crap version of it because fuel duty revenues are naturally going to fall as we move to electric cars. Um, I think that there is a, that creates a huge black hole in government finances. 
And I think that certainly some kind of road use pricing will be brought in to replace it. But my fear is that because it's so difficult to, to do congestion pricing, we do a kind of per mile charge. And a per mile charge is really not very useful economically at all, because really what we want is to charge people for creating traffic jams, um, that, to, to get basically roads flowing during rush hour and to make to create certainty about you know, how long it will take to get from point A to point B. But that's a really, really hard thing to do. And my fear is that the Treasury um, and, and government in general, not just the Treasury, you know, I, I, but my fear is that that huge growth benefit that could come from congestion charging won't, won't be brought in. Um, and the other area is investment. I mean, the UK just chronically underinvests. Um, I think a lot of the reason is because of the way we do corporation tax, not, not, at the, not in the UK right now, the level of corporation tax, but what is taxed by corporation tax. Um, and maybe I think probably the third is how inefficient public services are and how um, and I, I don't think that, for example, the NHS's only problem is funding. I think that it's how it uses the funding. I think the police is a really good example of how badly run a, a public service that is vital is probably because of politics, ultimately, because there's a, a fetish for frontline officers. And in eroding the back office, you end up with frontline officers spending huge amounts of time on paperwork and, and things like that that really should be done by somebody else, a, a simple division of labor. But to me, those are the big three. And um, the challenge to kind of boosters or like would-be boosters is how do we fix these problems in ways that aren't just complaining on Twitter, or that, aren't, that don't rely on us winning a grand election and taking over a political party and da 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 which is never going to happen and is a waste of time. Um, how do we craft specific modular policies that any government can pick up and put into practice and not worry about losing its majority at the next election for having done so? Which is kind of what we try and do here in the uh, Centre for Policy Studies. Uh, Off-the-shelf excellent policies. Tim, we're, we're coming towards the end now, but I mean, what? how do you see the potential for the kinds of institutional reform, Sam described, that reform of services? Because so far we've, and I think there is a tendency sometimes to see... This just as if it's a spreadsheet with a plus and minus column, you know, tax goes up, growth goes down or whatever. I mean, how much how much slack do you think there is in terms of institutional reform to make things more efficient and better? Uh, and how many and what sort of obstacles are there? I mean, it seems to me from the outside, again, that it's ponderous and slow to get things changed in a meaningful way in terms of delivering for public public services. Well, I mean, there's a public services point which I'll come to, but on institutions generally, I mean, I think having a credible institutional framework is an absolutely sort of vital underpinning of any growth strategy, right? And one of the things that I worry a lot about in the UK over the last five, six years is that we started to chip away at that in lots of ways. Uh, and I think thinking through very carefully about making sure that we do have a stable certain um, uh, institutional, institutional framework in place, I think is a very important idea, and particularly the right institutional framework to try and make sure that we, when it comes to the growth agenda, that we've got sort of independent scrutiny of what is working and what is not working, right? And so under um, uh, Theresa May, there was the establishment of the Industrial Strategy Council, and that was supposed to be part of then a framework, along with the OBR, Bank of England, that would look at growth policy and start to actually provide some independent um, scrutiny to it. I think it was a ridiculous decision to get rid of it, done purely for political reasons. Having something like that as part of your institutional framework, I think, is is very important. And I also think we need to be really careful before we start doing things like messing with the Bank of England's mandate just at this time when you're trying to deal with um, the, the, the inflationary problem we've got. So I think you've just got to be very careful on, on all of that. 
I think absolutely agree on public service reform. It has sort of disappeared from the agenda on the centre-right over the last few years, for sure. Um, and I think if you look down the track at the demographic issues you've got, so the OBR's current forecast is for health spending as a share of GDP to go from 8% to 15% over the next 50 years, state pension 5% to 7%. These are huge pressures. Public service reform has to be part of dealing with those. With those. Um, I, I, I don't think that is going to get you all of the way. Right? I don't think the scale of those pressures you're going to be able to fix, and I think that is going to lead to difficult decisions on, 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 on the tax side. But absolutely, having that as, 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 as part of an agenda, I mean, I think it's slightly different to the growth agenda, and I'd have it you know, done slightly, you know, it's a slightly separate bucket. But, you know, I, I think the Tory party has slightly lost its way on that, and I think that is, you know, something that it should definitely turn to. Um, Sam, we've managed to get through basically the whole podcast without really mentioning your day job, which is running an online magazine called Works in Progress. Um, we've spoken a lot about policy and interventions and taxes and things like this, but I just want to zoom out a bit to conclude and say, what do you think the kind of big ideas are in the world that might give us a bit more you know, optimism, things, innovation, scientific advances and so on that perhaps we don't think about when we look at those kind of 50-year horizons? Well, I said earlier that um, I don't think the big constraint on UK growth is how well we do things like science. But I do think that is the big constraint on global growth. And ultimately, that will feed down to us. Um, and I think the UK has a really interesting role that it could play on improving how we do science. You know, I recently um, did a, a show for Radio 4 about um, the great stagnation, this idea that, that we've all kind of talked about today, that, that global growth has slowed down kind of significantly since the 1970s. And some people think that's because, you know, we've, we've picked the low-hanging fruit of ideas. You know, you, the, the jet engine is a lot easier to invent than whatever comes next. Um, antibiotics, the effect that they had on, on healthcare and on people's lives are enormous compared to anything that we could do next. And it's much harder to think of whatever comes after antibiotics. Um, that's one view. Another view, uh, which which is what I'm sympathetic to, is that, and and these are actually these can exist at the same time next to each other, is that we've gotten worse at doing science. Um, we've gotten very very sclerotic <clears throat> in terms of the institutions that fund science. Uh, the age of scientific researchers who get grants has risen and risen. You're much more likely to get grants now if you have already won some kind of prize. Nobel Prize winners are the ones who get all the money. Peer review is totally broken. Most scientists, if you actually speak to them, are miserable um, and they hate their lives because they constantly have to fill in grant forms. Um, they spend you know, half their time um, filling in grant forms and, and that translates into huge amounts of waste and it deters people from going into that profession who could be really gifted and bright. So my kind of, I think where one low-hanging fruit and one thing that we should be excited about is the idea of meta-science, which is basically doing science on science, experimenting with how we do science. And I think the UK has a really interesting role here because um, with, the, with the establishment of ARIA, which is a new scientific funding body in the UK, which I'm pretty optimistic about, um, there's clearly an opportunity to do things differently here. And unlike the US, um, the whole world of science is not going to fall apart if we move things around a bit. If we, if we say, okay, look, 
UKRI is, is not necessarily working the way we wanted it to. The way we fund science in the UK is important, but it isn't vital to the global scientific um, community. So why don't we be the ones to experiment? You know, why don't we be the people who say, you know what, why don't we randomize to some extent who gets scientific grants? Or why don't we say we fund people rather than projects? Um, or uh, why don't we, rather than doing peer review, why don't we just allow scientists and give platforms to scientists to publish their work before they've done the research so that they can get feedback from their colleagues um, about the, the method rather than about the outcomes. So there are lots and lots of ideas around that. I don't think that on their own, I don't think that really on, on its own, the UK is going to change the course of the global scientific um, kind of path of discovery. But if we figure out ways of doing science better, then other larger players can copy from us and, and kind of pick up what we've learned. So I think we, we, we should actually be willing to be quite radical and bold on this. Um, and it could be something that we could be really proud of in, in decades to come. Well, nice to uh, end on a, a positive note after some, uh, some fairly gloomy assessments of the, the British economy. Um, I mean, we could sit here all day and discuss all these many, many, many interesting topics. Um, if you're at home listening, do follow Sam and Tim on Twitter, where they have these debates on a near daily basis. And thank you both very much indeed for joining us. And thank you at home for listening. Do tune in next week on Friday for the next edition of the CapEx podcast. Mm -hmm.